Welcome to the Round 6 Podcast, a weekly roundtable discussion featuring a variety of automotive subjects, interviews, special guests, and stories, hosted by the Round 6 Gearheads, Brian Stupski, Brad King, Alex Welsh, and Eric Hibbs. Here on episode 27, the Gearheads sit and talk 300 mile per hour F-bodies, aluminum Shelby 427 parts that never were, and more with racing engine builder Mike Lefevers. Welcome to the Round 6 Podcast. I'm Brian. I'm Brad. I'm Alex. I'm Eric. And I'm Mike Lefevers. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> perfect. Well, this is outstanding. Not, not only did he... Well, well you, you actually listen? This is awesome. <laughs> we have proof of our first listener. This is great. Long-time listener. <laughs> long-time. It'd be great if... You've got to like totally BS your way through it and go, yeah, long-time for years and years. I'll be like, oh, this is episode four. Way back. <laughs> Remember, you guys were on episode two and nobody knew how to connect to the internet. <laughs> Used yeah. to buy it on reel to reel. Yeah, problem with your dial up. <laughs> so that's odd. And how are you doing tonight, sir? I'm excellent. Outstanding. It's it's good to have you on. I mean, oh my God, there's a million questions for you. But um, for, for those who uh, are just joining us, and may not know Mike's name. Now, Mike is the owner of MyTech Racing Engines, and if uh, you've been around at all, uh, you know, gosh, this guy's work stems everything from, gosh, working with Shelby to uh, the salt. Man, a pleasure to have you on tonight. What are you working on this week? Oh, gosh. Um, Actually, there's... uh... Some contract work that I've been involved with. Uh, a friend of mine's installing a new dyno test cell, and uh, I'm helping him uh, uh, make an installation for that and trying to get uh, the electronics and the plumbing right for it and so on. So uh, he wants to have an engine dyno. Uh, he currently already has a chassis dyno, so he wants to have an engine dyno too in house. So I offered, he's been a longtime friend, so I've offered to help him with that. Working on a couple of uh, engines, uh, LS-based engines, working on a big block Chevrolet, and uh, trying to gather the parts together to recreate a uh, Bonneville engine that set the record back in 1979 for my longtime friend and partner, Jerry Kugel. Oh, neat. Awesome. Now, with that with that combination, are you going after to reset the record, or just building the car just to go play? What what are we doing with that? To reset the record. Okay. What are you using the same combination? I mean, is, is the motor the same deal, or are you playing with some late model stuff, or what are you what are you doing? It's got newer components, uh, but uh, he wants to stay somewhat old school. So when I say that, it'll have mechanical fuel injection, not electronic fuel injection. Oh, wow. Okay, that's cool. You know, so, you know, it's going to be like he had it originally, and uh, that's what he wants. So that's what we're going to do. What What's the record right now? 245. Oh, 
in a roadster. Would... Nothing wrong with that. No, <laughs> that's scary. Yeah, that's not much different than running a motorcycle at that kind of speed. <laughs> yeah, 258 cubic inches uh, on alcohol, twin turbo charge. Oh, and, and it's mechanically Ooh. injected? Yes. Okay, that's oh, kind of cool. Wow. That's that's actually really cool. So what are you using for the injection? Is it home-built or? Uh... It's a Hillborn. Oh, cool. How did you get started? What was, like, as a kid, were you into cars or? Yes. Uh, to, to answer that question, it'll sound like a lot of people, but my dad, bought me a car when I was 14 years old that didn't have any brakes. So he knew, he knew I couldn't drive it, but it was something that was on in the driveway. Nice. Thanks, so, yeah, Dad. That's, that's pretty much how it started. <laughs> how much did your father love you? Oh, he bought me a car with no brakes. <laughs> well, wait, though. we got to ask, what kind of car did he get you that didn't have brakes? Uh, it was a it was a 1956 uh, uh, Ford Crown Vic. Oh, cool. very That's nice. A cool car. If I we did if love I, you, if that car was back then, I'd have kept it. <laughs> 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 and maybe put brakes on it. <laughs> so did you did you finish that car? Did you was it a project? What did you end up doing with it? You know, it was a project, and it was mainly in from from my perspective. I wanted to know how the engine worked. So um, that was me learning how to set timing, adjust valves, see how much uh, flame I could blow out back out the carburetor and burn my (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Having spent like a ton of time with my face over a carburetor and having that done, I have so much scar tissue built up at this point, I can barely grow eyebrows. (laughs) It's amazing how you can see the thing coming, but you can't move your head fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's moving in slow motion. You still can't get get away from it. What's really funny is, you know, we've all done that. Why we do that? We already know the carbs. We already know the accelerator pump's doing what it's supposed to do. Why we look down the carburetor? I don't. Yeah, yeah. We got to see how much fuel is getting squirted in the engine. <laughs> but yeah that was sort of my impetus you know went from bicycles to that and uh, you know just proceeded i mean basically i've been involved with engines um uh, probably if you want to say professionally i've been employed uh as somebody who's worked on engines ever since i graduated high school wow cool you've been doing it a long time yeah, I'm afraid to say so. <laughs> yeah, we want to ask your age, see, so it, it keeps it kind of it keeps it subtle. He's been doing it for uh, 15 years, so anybody's <laughs> like 45. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So did you have did you have any professional or, or should I say you know did you have like a mentor or somebody teaching you or did you just go out and just kind of start figuring it out for yourself in the driveway? Originally, of course, I was doing it in my driveway, figuring it out for myself. I, I was a connoisseur, if you will, of, uh, you know, Bill Jenkins' uh, book or uh, anything that Rick Vogelin or C.J. Baker wrote in Carcraft or Hot Rod magazines. Those were, you know, I was really into 
reading what was pertinent to what I was doing at that time. Uh, but when I got uh, a little further down the line, I, I Gail Banks Engineering wasn't too far from where I lived in San Gabriel originally. And uh, I bugged them enough that they finally gave me a job. And their engine builder, uh, a gentleman by the name of Wally Cartwright, he used to work for Bill Strop back in the in the mid '60s, and um, that was the, they were doing NASCAR, uh, and they did all of Parnelli Jones uh, off-road engines uh, when when Baja was just starting to be a thing, and uh, he was my actual mentor uh, at the beginning. He was the one that showed me how to set bearing clearances and how to adjust valves and so on. So. Wow. So yeah, you didn't. You, you, you had quite a pedigree there. The, you kind of started on the top. You didn't start on the yeah. bottom. Like wow. <laughs> so did did you? I mean, obviously, you had the interest. Did you know, kind of, at that time, that that was something you wanted to pursue, maybe as a living, or was it something you didn't even give a thought to? You just kind of, you know, went forward with life, and it kind of happened. Yeah, it's almost funny. My mom. Uh, I went to her one day, and this was shortly after high school. And uh, I, the job I had at the time was at a company called Transgo. And they had built transmission reprogramming kits, or shift kits, if you will, for automatic transmissions. And I was a, a technician there and learning the ropes and stuff. And I, says, I told my mom I thought I wanted to do this for a living. And she says, oh, don't worry, yo you'll outgrow it. Uh, unfortunately, mom passed away about 15 years ago, but before she passed away, I managed to tell her that I didn't think I outgrew it. <laughs> <laughs> and still 15 years later, any luck? No, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a disease. I think you're aware of that. <laughs> Looks like Brian still draws cars, you know. <laughs> Never outgrew that. Nope. Uh, Neither did I, but I don't draw like you. <laughs> There's still a lot to be said, though. I mean, if you know, for learning via osmosis, because I think my subconscious picked up all that stuff in school, so now it just comes back out to play pretty much when Jeopardy's on. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so, so once you once you started doing that, what was the next step? Was that did that job last a while, or or how long were you? They're learning, learning that. I spent about four years at Gale Banks. Uh, okay. And that's the kind of the beginning of the Bonkville thing, if you will. Um, he was involved with uh, a gentleman named Bruce Geisler, who uh, 1953 Studebaker at Salt Flats. And um, when I went to work there as a young pup, um, I saw the car and asked a couple questions and found out they ran it at El Mirage and at Bonneville. And I says, Oh wow, they still do that. You know, I, <laughs> I, it's in hot rod and that that's something they did back in the fifties, you know? So I didn't have any idea that that still existed. So that was sort of the, the, the kernel that started forming my interest in the salt flats. And as I was working at Gale Banks, I was more of a machinist at that time than an engine builder. 
So I was doing valve jobs and boring and honing blocks and that sort of thing. Uh, in the meantime, I'd go bug Wally back in the engine room. And uh, that was I was learning from him uh, just by hanging around and seeing what they were doing. And in the meantime, Geisler asks me if I would be interested in going to Bonneville with him. So um, I said, sure, why not? <laughs> so my first adventure, I think I was uh, 22 years old and went to Bonneville, the Bonneville Soft Flats for the very first time. So what, what year was that? Any humor in Merle? It's 1979 or 1980. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's when the uh, same area that uh, the cars had the record, or the Roadsters had the record. Uh, yeah. In 1979, Jerry's Roadster set the record, and I wasn't with Jerry at that point in time. That was a, it was a different team of partners back then. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, I went with Geisler and um, – we set uh, we did set a record in it with his car and and got Don Stringfellow into the Bonneville Mile and Hour Club. And if I could take a second, not to uh, to try to pat my back too much, but I'm currently the secretary for the Bonneville 200 Mile an Hour Club, and I'm also the treasurer for Save the Salt. So you can see is oh, my. Cool. And and a, and a member. You're also a member. This is like the hair club thing. <laughs> <laughs> so so does everybody ask you if they if you can get them one of those red hats? <laughs> the simple answer is yes. A red hat costs fifteen dollars for the second. The first one costs you probably about forty or fifty thousand so. dollars. <laughs> <laughs> that's an easy so number, absolutely. That that Studebaker was that the the red hanky pinky? Yes, Is that was the hanky okay. pinky special. Very cool. Ooh, a special hanky pinky. This I got <laughs> <yeah. laughs> on, on a new special round six episode. I always wonder if there's a Polish team out there campaigning the hokey pokey special. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I digress. <laughs> In a Yugo. So how many how many cars have you been involved in, with at Bonneville? Well, if you if you count how many engines I built, quite a few. But I like to just in terms of the cars that I've actually been involved with. Um, you know, the Studebaker, the engine was actually supplied by Gale Banks, but I did the maintenance on it and stuff. The um, the Sundowner Corvette came after that, and I spent uh, the better part of uh, ten years working with Dwayne McKinney and John Meyer built engines for that car. Um, and then, um, uh, after that got involved with Jerry Kugel and his roadster. And at that point in time, his sons were just learning how to drive and, uh, they were in their twenties and, uh, I was building the engines for the car and we managed to get both of his sons in the Bonneville 200 mile an hour club and set records. And um, when once we had done that, then the, we were talking about doing something different, and that's how the Firebird came along. So you can well, kind of see oh. as years go on, they, you know, they, you, you say next year we'll do this, next year we'll do that. Well, pretty soon it's ten years later. You know? <laughs> well, to go back, I, I don't want to, I don't want to interrupt your flow here, but let me go back to the Sundowner car. That's a very iconic race car. Yeah, that thing right. sent a crap load of records. Yep. And and you put a lot of the motors in. See, this is actually cool. I did not know this. Because that oh. thing's been around for a long time. That's a fast yeah. car. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the fastest it's been at this point. Now you got to keep in mind it's a 1968 uh, Corvette, but uh, uh, the fastest it's been is like 255. Oh my gosh! Wow. Without any body modifications, right? Oh yeah, and in in the GT class, you're not allowed to make any body modifications. So absolutely no spoilers, no wings, no. That's awesome. That's insane. (laughs) It's a yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt your flow, but it's like that car is kind of a big deal since I kind of wanted to talk about it just for a second there. So now, now we fast forward to the uh, to the Firebird, the crazy car. Okay, well, what do you want to know about the Firebird, uh, dude? <laughs> you you were you were kind of my hero because come on, that was the first door car to go three hundred mile an hour. Um. I'd like you might get a little argument about it being a door car. I'd like to say stock body car. Okay, uh, we'll call it. The, yeah, okay. Let me. Stuff. Yeah, what what I refer to a door car, not something that's stretched out nine hundred feet. It looks like a Firebird. It's not yeah, all chopped and cut up. It's a car. Uh, has a has a has a stock hood with stock hood springs. It has the uh, original front uh, struts. It has. Power windows, the you know the rear the rear hatch opens up. I mean it's it's a it's a stock fire, but the doors open. Uh, you climb in and out of it just like you would any other car, other than you're climbing over the roll bars. So how amazing! Three hundred. Yeah, yeah, three hundred yep. miles per hour in uh, nineteen ninety nine. And there have been a couple of Firebirds that uh, they're kind of notorious for blowing over, aren't they? Well, the, it's the later cars. If 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 the truth be told, uh, the, it, the, the vintage that we were running was the 82 to 92 vintage car. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 93 and later Firebirds were not as aerodynamically stable as, uh, as the earlier car, the Gen 3 car, if you will. Interesting. Uh, that was, there was some issues with that. Um, and, and I'll be honest, the, the car that Lingenfelter ran with uh, Gary Akers and Carl Steigermeyer. Uh, they did go upside down, uh, but the reason is pretty straightforward when you're involved and you know who was doing what. They put a 1992 rear spoiler on the car. They took the 1988 spoiler off the car, uh, and they lost about 400 pounds of downforce. And Ooh. that loss of downforce is what ultimately caused the car to flip and they were looking at uh, the arrow numbers they were trying to go 300 and they had been 296 or something like that and they made a an error in calculations and after the fact it was obvious but before you're just trying to go fast and that less drag was going to help them go faster and there was there was guys see you beat your old boss because he had built his firebird they were out there trying to go for that record that was enjoyable you know, and and uh, yeah, there was a lot of guys trying to trying to be the first the first okay, we'll say stock bodied car to go three hundred mile an hour. So yeah. what you did was a pretty monstrous thing. Oh yeah. At that point in time, I was uh, very proud of that. I'm still very proud of it. So then the the guys uh, thinking that uh, thinking swiftly, what are we going to do the following year? It was let's put the fat engine builder in the car and see what. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then you can go to the different the different rear wing because you've got more downforce inside the car, right? Yeah, we uh, we changed engines and and uh, went into a different class. And uh, I was fortunate in, in in five runs. Now, mind you, I had never driven a race car on assault before. So in five runs, I uh, qualified, set the record at 260 miles an hour, and got in the Bonneville 200 mile an hour club. Wow. Too cool. Were you hooked? Did that hook you? Well, you know, as I, my deal has always been to make the cars go fast as an engine guy. Um, I enjoyed driving. I knew I could. It was never an issue of could I drive it. Um, the issue is always it's not my main focus. You know, some guys will do anything to drive. And in my case, it was... Uh, you know, the opportunity came along. I took it. It was nice. But uh, I'm still more of a, I want to make the car go fast. So like I said, my focus now is my sons and trying to get my sons into the Bonneville Center. What are you building for your sons? Well, we actually built it. And it it's We've been running it. It's a, In 2008, we built a, a modified roadster. Cool. And that was something totally different. I'd always pretty much been involved with door cars short of Jerry's Roadster. And uh, so this, to, to build a car from the ground up, I've never been involved with. So, um, you know, you start with a couple of tubes on the floor, and about three years later, it, <laughs> you know, and if you bought it, you might have something of a race car. So that's what we did. We built that car, and... Uh, uh, we've been running it for um, almost, well, 10 years now, I guess you could say, and uh, not counting the two years we didn't run because of uh, either rain or salt conditions, but uh, we, they've managed to get in the 200-mile-an-hour club at El Mirage, but our focus now is to try to get in the 200-mile-an-hour club at Bonneville. Well, you got to balance it out. You know, you, you can't be lopsided there. <laughs> <laughs> And we had good salt this year. That was that was one thing that was up there. Yeah, we really did. Unfortunately, um, my oldest son is is with young children right now, so he wasn't able to attend this year. My youngest son um, is involved in a, a project, and they're building a a rocket. And they were launching out of uh, Alaska, out of Kodiak Island, Alaska, about three weeks before it was time to go to Bonneville. And he had spent about the last six months in Kodiak. And so I was talking to him about trying to get the car ready and taking it. And he just said, Dad, I'm beat. I don't want to go. So that was it. We didn't take the car this year. I know I was texting you and up there going, hey, and you're going, oh, man, the salt's good. And I hope it stays because you you said it was thin, but you were you were a little worried about it hanging. And it looked like it hung pretty good. Yeah, I'd I'd say it did. You know, about the between the four and the five, it it started getting pretty bad, um, but it didn't really hurt anybody. You could you could make it through it. Well, I was going to say with all of the records that came out and, and got broken this year, what being up there. What was what was the atmosphere like? I mean, could you kind of feel it in the air? What, what you know was it? As, it obviously, it was as exciting there as it was for us watching it from afar. But what was the atmosphere different this year than in years past? Just with all the record breaking and the conditions and everything. 
I, I would say yes. I mean, it, it, to be honest, um, first off, you, you, you go up there. You have a lot of friends. You, this was an opportunity to visit with friends because uh, normally you're working on your car and you don't have time to sit and BS with the buddy. So we did manage to see a few people and stuff. But Bob Dalton, the owner of the Flashpoint Streamliner, is a, a good friend of mine. Well, we ended up working on that car. The, you know, so we didn't take our car, but we ended up working anyhow. <laughs> and uh, so to have five cars run over 400 miles an hour, that's never happened. Wow. And to, to watch Danny Thompson set his record, to watch Poteet run, uh, you know, just in general, it was it was an excellent meet to be at. And in a way, I'm glad I wasn't working on my car because you don't get the opportunity to watch and, and hang out and see what's going on very often if you're working on a car. Mm -hmm. Right. Have you ever seen that many cars battle for top speed of the meet? Never, no. That was, that was, <laughs> that was pretty cool, I got I to gotta say. I was yeah. pulling for George, but that was that was pretty crazy deal. And yeah, my phone know, was blowing up. A lot of people don't give it credit because it does have a turbine engine as opposed to pistons. But there's no doubt that a wheel-driven car is a wheel-driven car in my mind. And um, if you've got 3,000 horsepower with a turbine or you have 3,000 horsepower with a blown fuel nitro Hemi, uh, it makes no difference to me, although I do like pistons myself. Yeah, it's, yeah <laughs> me too. They sound better. Still impressed to watch Vesco's car run 470 miles an hour. So where were you at when it went by? Were you down at the other end, or were you at the at the, at the start? I was at the four and a half. Oh, so you oh, got to wow. see that thing trucking, man. Yeah, he was moving. So you could watch it coming into the three, and you could see the acceleration. It was it was very impressive to watch. That's so cool. You know, I um, being out of Bonneville, stand down. You know, the four mile mark around there. And watching the cars come through, even at you know three, just a little over three hundred miles an hour, it's funny because it's like you know when you're watching an amateur photographer try and keep a fast car in in the frame, your eyes actually do that on the salt. It's hard to focus on something at three hundred miles an hour or faster, um, yeah. especially if you can still visually see them accelerating. I mean, it's it will actually make you dizzy, and you're a mile away from the car. <laughs> It, indeed, it's it, it. That was uh, like I said. You asked if it was exciting to me. It was the the most exciting meet I've ever been to in in the last thirty five years. So I, so I love to hear that. That's that's awesome. I was just gonna go back in time again and pick up. How did you become involved uh, with Shelby? How did it? How did you get to that point? Or am I skipping way too ahead? That's actually not a bad spot at all. Okay. Uh, you know, of course, there's a lot of blanks that it, it can be difficult to fill them in. But long story short, <clears throat> I had been working uh, with an SCCA Trans Am race team for a, for a few years. Okay. And I was just starting my own engine shop at that time. He was getting ready to retire. And, um, and I was buying equipment to start my own engine shop. I was buying his dyno. And some of the other equipment that he had, plus some, some of my own equipment. And I was just getting ready to move into my shop. And at that time, uh, 
one of Shelby's guys came to visit with me and they were having some engine failures in Shelby had a, a road race series called the Can-Am series. It wasn't the SCCA Can-Am unlimited cars. They had reinvented the Can-Am series and they were using uh, Chrysler V6s in these uh, cars that he had built. And they were having some engine failures, quite a few actually. And so they brought me an engine to put on the dyno and they asked me to see if I couldn't figure out what the problem was. And we fairly quickly discovered that it was um, uh, an issue with their dry sump tank Don't, without going into any boring subject of it. You know, we cut a window in it. We could see it foaming. Anyway, once we fixed the problem, uh, they quit having failures. Well, in the meantime, Carol did one of those, made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So I decided, well, I haven't actually started the business yet, so I'll keep it. You know, I'll keep the, the shop I had leased, and you know, I already had my equipment. I'll go to work for Shelby. So that's what I did. I ended up in 1993 going to work for Shelby until 2003. I worked for him for 10 years. Wow. So, so that is kind of what started that part of my life, if you will. So were you were you building stuff or machining, or what were, what were you actually doing for, uh, for Shelby? What was, what was your deal? In the beginning, it was uh, as, as an engine builder. And uh, it was mainly for the uh, these Dodge engines, if you will, for the Can-Am car. But that morphed at that same point in time. He was doing what became known as the continuation Cobras. And uh, we had found some, some NOS, new old stock blocks, and some other stuff, crankshafts and things. And he wanted me to build some 427s for these, these cars. Well, there were only 10 blocks, and we couldn't get any heads, I mean, any new heads. Everything was old, used-up stuff. And, uh, you know, here we are building these cars, and the cars, he was selling them for $250,000 or whatever it was, and we're putting these engines in them that were really not much better than junkyard engines because the only thing new in them was the, the block and the, and the crankshaft. So... You know, he comes to me and he says, you know, what what do we need? And I, I said, the first thing you need is heads. And so he said, well, let, let's build some heads. He wanted to build a cast iron head. And I says, you're going to you're going to sell more aluminum heads and you'll sell iron heads. Well, we had a little bit of an argument. And I said, tell you what, we'll build 10 iron heads and we'll build 10 aluminum heads and uh, and pairs is what I should say. And we'll see what sells first, and then we'll make the second run out of whatever sells first. <clears throat> we had sold all the aluminum cylinder heads before we <laughs> ever. <laughs> well, those iron castings sat on a pallet out in the backyard. I'll go into that story later. But out in the back lot, <laughs> the better part of five years while we manufactured aluminum cylinder heads. And then that rolled into, now we have cylinder heads. But 10 blocks later, we were out of blocks. So, you, you know, back to the same old story, you know, what are we going to do? Well, let's build a block. So yeah, that that was my first experience at, at uh, building, being involved in the casting process and the, uh, you know, the machining of it and, and managing that program to get those aluminum blocks built. So, Oh, cool. Oh. 
Now, were you when you were doing the Shelby thing? Were you working in Southern California, or were you in Vegas? That was uh, that was in Gardena, California. So I was okay. down where the Goodyear Race Tire Store was. Gotcha. He was also the West Coast uh, Goodyear Race Tire Distributor. Right. So how was it working with uh, Mr. Shelby shoulder to shoulder? Was he pretty sharp technically? If you if he kind of, I always wondered. He seemed that way, you know. Um, I, I don't want to bust anybody's bubbles. No, he he wasn't very technical. Okay. Um, he used to talk to a lot of people, and um, he would get opinions, and then he would make a decision. He was pretty much a businessman in that respect. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, an example would be after the blocks were built and after the heads were working, he was thinking ahead. What do we want to do next? What do we want to do next? And he wanted to build a dual overhead cam, four valve cylinder head for the 427 Ford. Cool. And I, like, Whoa. Okay. And he, ah, damn it, my money, I want to build it. Okay, fine. You know, so I started looking into it, getting price quotes. And uh, in the meantime, he talks to one of his friends, which happened to be Lee Iacocca. And Lee Iacocca told him, you're a damn fool, Shelby. <laughs> you don't need a four-valve head on a board with four inches in diameter. So, and suggested that uh, I don't chase around any more pricing on that project. <laughs> oh, boy. So it died there. It died there. <laughs> I'd like to think that there might have been a dual overhead cam, four valve cylinder, you know, 427 Ford cylinder head someday. <laughs> wow. It I suppose it a, still could be. It would have been a breathing fool, that's for sure. So let's, uh, I, I'm curious. I, I mean, do you have, I, I'm sure you have your favorite series of engines. Uh, what is it? Oh, wow. You know, as a as an enthusiast, not as an engine builder, but as an enthusiast, uh, the 427 SOHC, the single overhead cam engine from 1967, yeah. is visually and uh, <clears throat> just a stunning piece of engineering. And, and, I, and I like it a lot. Um, certainly not practical in a lot of respects and, and uh, right. certainly never set the world on fire in any way. But as engines go, I really like that engine. I, I was fortunate to build a few of those in my time. And uh, uh, I just enjoy the engine. So, and, right. you know, between building big blocks, you know, small blocks, Fords, Chevys, Chryslers, you know, just – there's there's a lot of things I've been involved with that I might be more proud of, but in terms of the enjoyment of the engine itself and the, the functionality and the looks, the camera was was the was the neatest engine ever. Yeah, I love the cameras. Bitch and bitch and engines. So how about as a builder? I mean what do you what do you like to build? Well, uh, let, let's talk about that a little bit in the sense that I was always a small block, big block guy. And when the LS engines came along, I was kind of like, oh, geez, you know, let's make a Chevy look like a Ford. That was, <laughs> I think. Um, 
in the last two years, I've had the opportunity to be involved in some pretty high horsepower LF engines. And I'm simply amazed at how easy it is to make p pretty good sized power numbers out of them and how easy they are to put together and how, um, in terms of, you know, one of the issues, doesn't matter who you are, but oil leaks are just hard to avoid sometimes, whether it's a, a big block or a small block. They, you know, oil pans and things like that can be a, a real pain in the ass to keep from leaking or even rear seals. And um, uh, a, a, an LS engine is just like, it's idiot proof. The darn thing, anybody can put one there and they won't <laughs> leak oil. So I'm impressed with the amount of power. Some of the stuff that, uh, that I've been involved with have been making upwards of 100 horsepower on, on gasoline, you know, race gas. And moderate boost levels, not crazy boost. And, uh, you know, I'm sure there's, you know, the 2200 horsepower is doable. It's just the drive lines in the cars that I've been involved with can't handle that. So, yeah. it, you know, there's where we're stopping right at the moment. But uh, it's an impressive engine package. Well, apparently at Bonneville this year, it was the turbos that couldn't handle the pressure. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Saw some windowed turbos that were kind of funny. <laughs> well, funny to you. Yeah. <laughs> you just increased the cost of that red hat. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so now going from uh, from your time at, at Shelby, moving forward, it, it was it after that that you went and opened your own shop, or what was Yeah, the, okay. when I... Shelby's, um, I was fairly comfortable at that point that it was time to go to my shop full time, and that's what I've been doing since then. Right. Very cool, man. And you, you build now. Do you do you just specialize in building for uh, for land speed racing, or are you kind of all over the place? Well, I'm all over the place. I mean, I have a 300, 302 small block Ford in there right now for a Ranchero. So, you know, it's, it's whatever comes in the door. Um, I'm trying to not take too many oddball things on a, like I've been, I've done a 455 Oldsmobile one time and it was like, you can't make any money on that stuff if, if you don't pay. So I try to avoid doing those, you know, um, I've built Pontiacs in the past. I've built Oldsmobiles, uh, you know, but I try to stay with more contemporary engines nowadays. So you don't want to touch my flathead. Funny you should ask that one. I, uh, Jim Travis is a is a longtime friend of mine, and he drug in a flathead one day and wanted to know if I could do a valve job on it. And I thought I could. No, I can't. Thought <laughs> 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 so I could do it. <laughs> Oh, so okay. So we can't rely on you for uh, let's see anything super exotic. Like, uh, what if we want to do a V nine <laughs> <laughs> flathead based Oldsmobile with a Pontiac crank, um, septuplet overhead cam, who one hundred and eighty degree Pontiac crank, yeah. <laughs> reverse rotation, <laughs> reverse rotation. <laughs> So we're done now, right? <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Just started. 
but you know, we we don't have any money to spend, but you're going to get a lot of notoriety out of this. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know how that is. It's going to make you famous. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> famous don't feed the kids. So I, I'm, I'm thinking I'll be on uh, the news tonight, and and it won't be because I'm funny. <laughs> in this group you're probably the funniest person in the world let's be honest <laughs> but uh, you know I did some Vipers uh, thought that was going to take off but uh, in you know in 2008 when the recession hit um, all my Viper customers were pretty much um, uh, you know dot com guys or, or in the stock market so when the when all that took a tumble, those guys just disappeared. And um, so I had built a, uh, a dry sump oil pan for them that would fit in the stock car and had built a, a custom intake manifold with my own castings and stuff, thinking that I was going to be able to sell all this stuff. And um, lo and behold, that all just went away. And those customers, at my original assessment was, they were the same customer as a Cobra owner was. They wore uh, the same kind of hat, except a Cobra owner was the guy that had a business and, and quit hot rodding when he was a youngster to grow his business and, and, and make his money. And then when he retired, he always remembered back to the 60s and wanted a Cobra. So he had enough money that he went back and did it. The Viper guys were younger guys, and they were making money right away. But when the market changed, they uh, their money dried up, and they had to quit racing completely at that point, or quit being involved in the performance market. So, uh, you know, I learned a little bit about that, and had to, uh, you know, eat uh, quite a bit of hardware. Did you ever get rid of it, or are you still stuck with a lot of that stuff? I, I quit. I. I got out of it completely and, and, uh, uh, just it, if I could probably reinvent all that, if you will, I mean, I still have the patterns for the castings and stuff, but it's just so expensive to do, especially a one-off. It just, uh, it isn't worth doing. It's such a small market. Yeah. You can go to daily now and he does a billet oil pan, uh, and pump assembly and it'll, it's, you know, in the end, it'll be cheaper than my cast pan and and market pump. So, right. So, having having been around it for, I mean, for as long as you have, like having been around it from kind of, you know, uh, older school technology and working in toward modern stuff where everything is, you know, electronic fuel injection and multi turbos and all this other stuff. Where. Like, where do you find your comfort zone as far as, you know, building power? And this might be a really loaded question too, but, you know, where do you see things going, say, in the next five or ten years? Well, in terms of the ability to make horsepower, especially turbocharged, electronic fuel injection really changed that world. That's why there's so many people that are competitive now with, with turbocharging. But... And I, and I don't want to not answer the rest of your question, but I'm going to take you back to something we were talking about a little earlier. And the Sundowner Corvette, when we set the first record with that car, uh, with my engines in it, was 1988. 
and um, that was a 300 cubic inch twin turbocharged draw through carbureted uh, engine. Wow. It went 240. That record is still in the book. So in in some respects, you, you, I can I can work both ways. So like when Jerry wanted to run mechanical fuel injection on the Roadster, I said, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. We, we can do that. We've done it before. So it's not like it can't be done. It's easier um, in some respects to do it with electronics. That's all. I can tell the story. Most people don't believe it. But when we were building the engine for the Firebird, okay, that was a regular small block Chevrolet. It was um, it it to run in the C class. It was the maximum cubic inches is 372, so we were 368 cubic inches, and um, that was twin turbocharged. But what most people weren't aware of was from my uh, SCCA Trans Am racing days, the block was an old block GM bow tie block from one of the Trans Am cars that we ran for four years. The cylinder heads was a set of 23 degree Chevrolet cylinder heads, aluminum. And, um, you know, and then the electronic fuel injection. So that engine made uh, 1400 horsepower. To go, it took 1,400 horsepower to go 300 miles an hour. Wow. And I'm going to take a little sidestep here. Uh, in 1997, two years before we went 300, we, with the same engine package, we had gone uh, and dyno tested at my shop and made two, 1,200 and I want to say 1,260 or something like that horsepower. And our calculation said that that's about what it would have taken to go 300. And it, we went 295. And we went 295 down and 295 back. If you look at the time slips, they're within tenths of a mile an hour, over a mile of each other. And at that point in time, 1997, people thought we had traction control because we had the electronic fuel injection. Well, I guarantee you we didn't have it because... There were guys climbing under the car when we broke the transmission the next year looking for it. We had the car up <laughs> on and that's the salt flats. And they uh, we were taking the transmission out and guys wanted to look and we said, Sure, come on under, you know. So they were climbing under the car looking for wheel speed sensors and stuff. We had nothing. You know, there were all we had was the EFI on the on the engine. That was all it had. And, uh, and then when we went 399, there's an in-car video. If you go to the Google Components uh, uh, website, at the bottom of the page, it, it has a, a link to watch the in-car video of our 300-mile-an-hour, first 300-mile-an-hour pass. And uh, you can pretty much see that there's no traction control because it spins the tires a couple of times really bad where so he has to short shift. So, uh, anyway, that, I think I got kind of sidetracked a little bit for you, but, uh, I thought it was interesting that 1260 horsepower went 295 
it took another 150 horsepower just about to go 300, five miles an hour. <laughs> That's that's kind of amazing how that works exponentially. Everything changes. Yep, you got to cube the power to double. So, and it's all about cubic dollars too, right? <laughs> well, and that was my point of saying that it was an old block and old cylinder heads and stuff. We didn't have as much money tied up in that project as a lot of people thought we did. Um, we bought the car uh, secondhand from another pair of racers, uh, Dave McDonald and Lionel Pitts. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were getting a new Firebird from Pontiac because Pontiac wanted them running the new car. <clears throat> well, I was fortunate in the years that I was working in, in the Trans Am series that I had wind tunnel data that showed the Gen 3 car was better aero-wise than the Gen 4 car. So when I was talking to Jerry, he's going, well, maybe we should get a new car. I said, no, the old car's better. And so I could show him the data. And so we ended up buying that car and, uh, and then building this engine, basically, and putting it in the car. And if you knew how many used parts were in it, you wouldn't believe it. So, <laughs> <laughs> But that's hot rodding. That's cool. hot rodding Bonneville. Too cool. Now, didn't Jerry run um, basically a street roadster with a with a camera engine in it over two hundred? Am um, I thinking right? No, you're you're kind of right. Um, he built um, a modified roadster with a camera in it. Okay. Uh, in the early sixties, mid sixties. So mm-hmm. that was that had been about sixty seven, I think, that they ran that. He okay. ran it for a couple of years. Um, if I remember correctly, he didn't get in the 200 mile an hour club in that car it was uh another roadster uh that he drove a year later i believe and then built the current the roadster that he's going to rebuild right now that roadster came next so he's gotcha. been in a yeah i just wonder if you had built those engines but that's probably before you were that's building before my time in 57 yeah. i would have been 10 years old <laughs> <laughs> You're still four years away from a Crown Vic with no brakes. <laughs> so, were, were you like the guy in your group of friends through high school? Were you the guy that everybody relied on to like tune their car or get their car running right? Um, yeah, there that there was a group of us that hung out, and I I guess my impression would be that they were, uh, to use the term nowadays, it would be a wannabe. They, they, they wanted to do this stuff, they thought, but they didn't want to commit to it. And I knew I had that level of commitment. But, you know, when you're 17 or 18 years old, it's easy to think you have that level of commitment. You don't realize until later that you really do or you don't, you know. Right. And... Uh, it was pretty obvious to me that I that this is what I wanted to do and that I was going to do it at all costs. That's that's awesome. So, if you could go back in time and talk to say seventeen, eighteen year old you with this passion and this this commitment, you're getting ready to do this thing. What advice would you give yourself as far as going into uh, the career that you did 
and steps that you took as far as running your own business? Wow. Um, I figured I'd load the hell out of one for you. I'll make I'll go for an easy one. Wow. <laughs> I've always tell everybody that I feel very fortunate to have done what I've done for a living, that I enjoy getting up and going to work in the morning and stuff. Um, I live in a nice house. I'm comfortable. I have most of the things I need. But um, I think I what I told my kids was you're smarter and better off to get a job that pays well and do this, what I do for a living, do it as a hobby. And uh, so I don't know if I would tell myself that or not. Um, like I said, I enjoy getting up and going to work. So, you know, if you if you had a job and let's say you were a lawyer and you were making 250000 a year, you might be making a lot of money, but you might not be happy going to work. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, that's something you, we'll never know. I... I, I'm not disappointed in the path that I took. Um, uh, would I change it? I doubt it, but uh, but you never know. Well, that's why I didn't become a gynecologist, so you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it always goes there. Uh, <laughs> that's why I became a proctologist. <laughs> that's why I hang out with you, Brad. Yeah. <laughs> oh, come on. Oh. Really? This is... Brad's the oh, perfect right. example of one. Oh, wait. Um, hey, hey. I meant that as a, that's a compliment. <laughs> yeah. <In> some cultures. <laughs> some cultures. <laughs> so and, and we always try to make the podcast kind of something people can go to as a resource. So, I mean, if, if you don't mind my asking, what advice would you give to anyone maybe maybe there's a kid out there right now who's messing around with a car in the driveway that has no brakes or you know with, <laughs> with today being the way it is maybe it doesn't have navigation um is, is a maybe there's a kid out there who's you know watching this stuff on on youtube and over on facebook and seeing these cars at bonneville smashing records this past year and he's just he's got the bug as far as maybe forging a career into this kind of thing do you have any advice for someone starting out who wants to go ahead and just make gobs of power? Um, I don't know that I have advice. I think what I would say, though, is believe in yourself. You can do it. If you have the drive, you can do this. It's not I'm nothing special. You know, I spent a couple of years in college, but I never graduated. Uh, but but you got to be careful with your research and I'll. I'll use my earlier comment about the magazines and books that I read. There was a lot of information in those magazines, but you have to be able to decipher the BS. So in other words, some of it's a little bit of a sales gimmick or, or things, you know, this is the best thing since sliced bread, but you can read and find the information. And if you're intelligent, you can decipher the stuff that's important to what you're trying to accomplish. And the same thing's true today with the Internet. There's, it's, it's almost disheartening to watch somebody ask a question on the Internet about maybe building an LS or something, and then seeing you know the first few answers are intelligent and 
and maybe somebody trying to help. And then as it, as it progresses, it, it turns into just a, uh, it, it becomes something that's really hard to wade through. And so you have to be able to take and figure out what's real and what's not. Who's BSing? Who knows what they're talking about? You know, there are guys, I've answered questions before, and it gets, it gets real discouraging when somebody comes along and, and tells you you don't know what you're talking about. And it's like, well, I'm not going to get into a pissing contest with you, so, you know, <laughs> uh, you know uh, that, that's the hard part. So I, I would say when I was a kid, that was the part that I thought I was good at, that I could read and take the information that was pertinent to what I needed to know and I used it to, to better myself in this career path that I chose. The Internet gives us that fabulous opportunity, but you have to be able to siphon through the bullshit, you know. Right, right huh. Thank you. I, so that in mind, what in your experience is the number one, like, old wives' tale or urban legend as far as it goes for building an engine? What's like the one tip that you, you know, people tend to cling to, like, you know, maybe you get something out there where somebody says, oh man, before you put the engine back together, you know, wipe a Scotch-Brite pad across the the crank, you know, three times clockwise, (laughs) once (laughs) counterclockwise, and make this chant, you know, do do, do you have any urban legends like that as far as building (laughs) go that you just know are absolute garbage? Uh, (laughs) Except as common practice. I, I probably do. Just don't know if I can think of any right off the top of my head. Um, I, the one of the ones that that always I thought was interesting, and I never understood. I think it comes from an aircraft background, and early in in times, early in in the development of the internal combustion engine, and that's um, if you run open exhaust, you'll warp the valves when you shut the engine off. <laughs> and of course, that isn't true because we do it all the time, but you know that was a wives' tale, and I remember as a as a kid hearing it and thinking, well, so you'd put you know caps on the exhaust pipes or something after you made a run, but as time went on, you're going, why? You know what? Caught you know cold air exhaust pipe and it warps that valve. <laughs> um, uh, that was one, you know, I, I, I don't know that I can think of any others. I'm sure there's plenty, but I, but, uh, I, you know, eventually you do, you start using logic and you say, okay, the engine's still warm, the valve's sitting there or it's open as the case may be, but, uh, the materials have changed and, uh, those things just don't happen. Yeah, the one that always drives me nuts, my car's overheating, and all the tips that everybody gives, oh, it's a water pump, oh, it's a thermostat, oh, it's this, oh, it's that. It's like, have you checked timing. initial timing at all? Have you? No. Do that oh, you first. Know the, you Before know you the spend answer any that. money, put a timing light on it, and these guys just can't figure that out. They just want to go spend money. Yeah. <laughs> if you've true. spent any time in the Dodge Challenger forums, you know the answer to that. It's change the flywheel. Change the flywheel. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> Brilliant. Speaking of flywheels, when you were talking about the string fellow car, 300 cubic inches, 242 mile an hour, I was, I've been thinking about this the entire time since you said that. And I'm thinking from an engine builder standpoint, I'm thinking, 
put a heavy flywheel in that thing. So whenever I shift, I'm not really dropping RPM in the motor. I'm keeping it up in the, in the RPM band and letting the thing pull the gear. Is that common thinking or am I completely wrong? I, I won't say that you're wrong. Okay. I will say it doesn't seem to matter. Okay. Uh, there's enough inertia like what we run nowadays i run a seven and a quarter inch three disc clutch and an, an aluminum flywheel or a very lightweight steel flywheel mm -hmm. uh, but in my case on my this is on my modified roads uh we're not we're not having an issue with uh, uh losing any rpm in our shifts other than the the drop between our gear splits because we have an air shifter. So yeah. mm -hmm. it's pretty much, an, we're not pushing the clutch in and pulling the lever, but to be honest, um, I know guys that like to run heavy flywheels for that reason. Uh, I was never part of that school. I never, it didn't, it didn't seem to matter to me. We, yeah. we didn't have that issue. I was thinking like the old modified production drag motors with those big heavy flywheels and little tiny cubic inches, and they would zing those things up in the RPM and they'd stay there. Yeah, I I love modified production. Oh, they were so bitching. Racing Watson Corvettes and, and Camaros, <laughs> you know, 287 cubic inch engines, 10,000 RPM, and leave the starting line. You know, oh. <laughs> I will support for that. Oh. Yeah, and they sounded so awesome because they rev up and they were slow to rev back down. They just sounded so badass. Right. <laughs> well, they were badass. That's oh, they were. Yeah, they were. It was so cool. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of sounding badass, here we go. The, uh -oh. I, I've got to ask this great question. <laughs> uh, putting together a street motor. I know there's so much contention about this. Mufflers or no mufflers? Mufflers. And and from a technical standpoint, because I, I so badly want to put the final nails in this coffin. I mean, obviously, with a, with a decent muffler, you, I don't see how it's possible to lose power, but you always see these guys saying, oh, yeah, I won't run you know this muffler because it's so restrictive. And, you know, I just always kind of wondered, you know, Oh, you're looking for a technical answer. I can't stand the loud noise. <laughs> I've been listening to loud cars my whole life. I like a nice sound enclosed exhaust system. So See, I went with I went with that on mine. I when the time came, everybody's like, "Why don't you make your car sound all rowdy?" I wanted something that was like a gentleman's hot rod. You know, it, it'll yeah. bark when you open it up. When I'm sitting at the light, I wanted to hear the music on the radio. I kind of wanted to hear what was around me. You know, and I think I think there's a fine line between having kind of a cool, rowdy-sounding car and something that sounds like a you know a dump truck that pulled up next to you. I, I think it has to do exactly that in the in the sense that as, as you've as you've aged, as you grow up, you want something loud to attract attention, and so you want open exhaust or or a loud exhaust system. And as that wears you out. Um, when you get out of the car, you feel like you've been beat up. You uh, you learn that a closed exhaust system that sounds nice, uh, done correctly, is is really what you really want as you get older. Um, I remember the first time I took my Chevelle to the drag strip, and I took the mufflers off. I did not have a tack in the car, but I was convinced that 
I knew when to shift because I could hear the engine. <laughs> well, when there's another car in the lane next to you with no exhaust on it, and your car has no exhaust on it, I can guarantee you, you have no idea where the engine RPM is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure somewhere between two and 9,500. Yeah. Shift when it quits pulling. <laughs> that <is> what... <laughs> Floating valves. <laughs> Oh, no, I'm, I'm a fan of mufflers, and uh, I think if an exhaust system is done correctly, if if you lose five to seven horsepower with that on a street car, I don't give a rat's ass because I'm running street tires too, not slicks. So, yeah. I'm, well I'm exactly, yeah, and I love these people too with the whole butt dyno thing that you hear all the time online. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, you can tell that you gained four horsepower. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Remember those old air filter commercials where they say, "Yeah, I put it in, and it now goes whoa." <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, you get that a lot. The uh, what is it? The cold air intake stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The sticker adds more horsepower than the, the device did. Well, it, it, my experience, it's always been well. It's got to be better. You know, that, yeah. that sells it. It's got to be better. The exhaust is open. Yeah. Well, all that stuff, like, and I, that's why I love a lot of these bolt-on parts. These guys like, oh, anything's better than the factory stuff and this and that. And you're going, well, you know, they had a team of engineers. This was their life for months on end trying to develop this engine. <laughs> I don't think they skimped at the last minute and they went, well, yeah, we'll just put on whatever. We thought... <laughs> When I was when I was back at Shelby's, I'm going to take you back a step. Um, we, you may or may not remember, they built a car called the Series One, right? And that had an Oldsmobile Aurora V8 yeah. in it. And um, so the original cars, I think, made 330 horsepower, if I remember right. And um, you know that was kind of lackluster. It's not bad because the car was fairly light. Uh, center of gravity was real close to the middle of the car, so it had some good handling. But, you know, being Shelby, he wanted more power. So, you know, the first thing we thought we'd do is, okay, well, we'll take the heads off and we'll put some Cadillac camshafts in it and bigger valves and do a little porting. And we'll, we ought to be able to pick up yeah, 20 maybe, you know, we figured maybe 20 horsepower. So, yeah, off come the heads, in go the cams. Uh, a little pocket porting and a, a little bigger valve, and yeah, all of about eight horsepower. <laughs> <laughs> but the butt dyno said it was nine. Yeah. So that wasn't gonna that wasn't gonna sell many uh, people. That the uh, the amount of effort it took to get that wasn't worth it. So they they went and they added a supercharger kit. But you know, that's that's why superchargers are such a such a nice deal because you can pick up 100 foot pounds of torque and that's what you feel in your ass not the extra 50 horsepower that you know that 100 foot pounds of torque will definitely get your attention so right Right on so as an engine builder and a customer brings uh, an engine say a street engine for you to do or do you find yourself talking the owner down from his cam selection or up from his cam selection? Because sometimes some guys go in there and they go right to the bottom page of the cam book. <laughs> most, <laughs> most of the customers come in want too bit too much. Yeah, and so you're you, 
what I spend my time doing is evaluating the customer. And so you have to ask him a lot of questions that revolve around his project, but you want to kind of get an idea of what he is. And if, if he's got another car, if he's going to the NHRA cruise in, or is he going to the NHRA bracket drags? You know, I mean, what, what, what's he doing with the car? And that will help you determine um, what he needs for his project and, and trying to sell him what he really needs, not just what he wants. And um, it's difficult because you still have to try to give him what he's asking for. Mm-hmm. But I give you a pretty good example of that. I did a Cobra uh, engine for a customer after I left Shelby's. And he had to have, uh, he wanted between 650 and 700 horsepower. And I told him that I did not think that was a good idea in the Cobra because when you have about 550, it's about as much as you can do to drive that car. And uh, he insisted, no, my buddy's got 600. I've got to have 650 to 7. And he was a very well-to-do individual. And so I gave him. The, the engine that he asked for, and it made 675 horsepower. And um, he came back after they installed the engine in the car, got everything running, and he came back, brought the car by to show me the car and the installation. Very nice installation, but he was he was disappointed that it was so hard to drive. <laughs> <laughs> Can't imagine why. <laughs> so I told him. I says, don't you remember me talking to you about trying to do 550 to 6? And no, he had no recollection of that part of the conversation. He was (laughs) focused in that he had to have that horsepower. And anyway, that was that's the the drama you get into. Here's this guy has this really nice car and he virtually can't drive it because it's uh, undrivable at that power level. It had eight you know, it had a uh, an eight-stack injector on it. It was electronic fuel injection. But when you tip the throttle in, you had all eight throttles opening up at one time. It was very <laughs> hard to drive. Wow. So a race motor in a streetcar. Yeah, basically. Yeah, short wheelbase, tiny, lightweight streetcar. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> Been there, done that. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to do it again. Um, No, I mean, I've I, I grown that. <laughs> I remember telling my wife I'd like one, but that I didn't that over very well either. When she said you got a race car in the garage, <laughs> so I can't thank you enough though for uh, for for joining us here and letting us pick your brain. And man, it, speak for myself. Well, I had a damn good time. Yes, Mikey. Thank yeah. you very thank yeah. you very much, sir. Yeah. Your guys are more than welcome. I, I hope uh, you know that I was able to give you some insight into into what I do. But uh, you know, you guys being gearheads, you probably find it interesting. But you know, well, sadly, you're that one guy. So I, you yeah. know, if you were entertained yeah, by it, it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, our seven cool. listeners are going to love this. And that includes your two dads, right? Uh, oh, well, it's up to three now. There's, there's been a whole we'll talk about that off there. Oh, <laughs> things have gone weird. 
Uh, Mike, thank you very much. Yeah. No problem for having me, guys. It's fun. <laughs> but thank you again, sincerely. I appreciate you taking some time yeah, out of your evening for fun. us. I wanted to get all techno geek, but I'm like, no, nah, this thing could last 10 hours if we do that. <laughs> you? Never. Yeah. <laughs> I love that kind of stuff. Oh, awesome, right, Mike. Be talking to you here pretty soon, sir. All right. Take care, guys. Thank you. Right, Thanks, sir. Thanks. Have a great night. All right. All right. Bye. 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 Thanks again to our guest, and thank you for listening. As always, I'm Brian. I'm still Brad. I'm Alex. I'm Eric. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening, and be sure to keep up with us gearheads over on our website at www.round6pod.com. And if you'd like to, we invite you to follow along with us over on Facebook, Instagram, and be sure to check out all of our latest videos on YouTube.com. And I could hear somebody in the bathroom just blowing one out. Just (laughs) It sounded like a fish tank getting emptied into the toilet. (laughs) What a a bunch of big fish. Yeah, yeah, I tell it with the rocks and everything. It just sounded like... (laughs) 